Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And I'm sad to report, John, that in a world without major live sports, we have officially run out of content. (laughs) On ESPN.com this week, the main story on the homepage at one point was a ranking of the top 74 sneakers in NBA (laughs) history. Uh, The Ringer recently staged a 64-person bracket to determine the best reality TV character of all time. And on Slate.com's sports page this week, the top headline at one point was, was Donald Trump good at baseball? Uh, people are out of ideas. Uh, and frankly, so am I. So, John, I ask you, was Donald Trump good at baseball? Who's the best reality TV character of all time? And what's your all-time favorite NBA sneaker? Uh, let me uh, uh, unwrap those. Um, <laughs> no, Trump was not good at baseball at all, actually. Uh, apparently, he was good field, no hit. Um, okay. and, and at a very very low level. So uh, more interesting to me on that is that there, there's so much focus on the fact, and this is not terribly controversial, uh, he cheats at golf. And we all know that. <laughs> right. Um, but for his age, he is an incredibly elite golfer. I mean, uh, if he was forced to play straight up, uh, he would pr- prove that. Uh, he probably would never do it, but if he did, he he would prove it. Um, he's very strong given his, uh, you know, girth and age. Um, <laughs> he's long off the tee. He's an excellent golfer. But um, anyway, uh, best reality TV character. Um, as our listeners know, I mainly have only watched The Bachelor of all those reality shows, but Nobody completely stands out, so I'm going to go with John Taffer, the host of uh, Bar Rescue, who ironically, uh, uh, our guest this week, once guest, would be my favorite reality show. It's not mm. quite, but it's uh, I've seen it enough, and uh, I've seen enough episodes. Um, what I enjoy is how confidently he guarantees success at the end of every episode, and you know anybody with even primitive uh, <laughs> online skills like me can do a quick Google search and show you that a decent number of these bars shut down even before the episode ran. So you watch <laughs> the show, and it tells you how great it was, and it's it's a new new beginning for this uh, stressed uh, family or whatever. And then it turns out the place went under right away. Um, but you know maybe 20, 25 percent I think or so seem to survive, and a few even thrive. And it's so hard to predict which or which. So 
I think his his shameless huckstering kind of appeals to me. Okay. And last one, the best sneaker uh, now and forever is going to be Chuck Taylor's for sure. <laughs> I that that was the one answer uh, out of you that I that I could have predicted. I, I figured yeah, yeah. you're a, you're a Chuck Taylor kind of guy. Yeah. And in terms of style, I'm with you. Uh, you know, in terms of playability, maybe not. Yeah, but yeah, um, right. but yeah, I was going to ask if you had a pick for the number one Bachelor Nation character uh, of mm-hmm. all time. But it, yeah, it sounds like sounds like there's not really someone who's stands out from the from the seasons that I watched which again was most of like the first six or seven seasons I can't remember one personality that struck me as oh that seems like a fun person to hang out with so um on the sneaker front uh, I'm one of the only kids who grew up in the 80s who never had a pair of Jordans uh you know I I kind of wanted one but I could never quite justify asking my parents to spend over a hundred dollars on a pair of sneakers it just seemed unreasonable (laughs) to me um as a professional content creator, uh, I have to say, I'm fine with lists and rankings, but I get annoyed by weird numbers like the 74 greatest sneakers. You know, <laughs> top 10, top 20, top 50, those are lists. Top 74, that's <laughs> kind of a journalism fail in my book. <laughs> and uh, I'll say no comment on whether whether uh, Donald Trump was good at baseball because <laughs> I, I don't want to be seen as partisan. Uh, all I'll say is uh, I do know that he was uh, born on third base and made sure the scorekeeper gave him credit for a triple. Uh, and uh, and I think I should probably change the subject before I didn't go any further on that. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 90 of Gamble On. That's right. We're just 10 weeks away from having to scramble to come up with a really noteworthy guest to make our 100th episode seem special. If you missed any of our previous 89 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe and drop us one of those five-star ratings. Yeah, and coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by our colleague Brian Pempis, who is not only a fine gaming industry writer and uh, editor, but also a big MMA fan. Uh, so Brian will come on the show to talk about Saturday's UFC 249 event, sharing his thoughts on the main event odds and whether better should expect the unexpected with some of these fights. But first, it's been a, I'd say, moderately busy news week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We don't want to say that sports betting is continuing to spread across the country because this is not the time to talk about anything spreading across the country. But uh, one new state has launched sports betting since last we podcasted, and another has established a timeline toward launching before the end of the year. First, in Colorado, the first bets were placed last Friday, all via computers or mobile devices, of course, with BetMGM, BetRivers, DraftKings, and FanDuel all launching within an hour of each other, while another 14 operators are licensed, some of which will be launching soon. Former NBA star Chauncey Billups placed the first bet in the state, $100 at Bet Rivers, on the Broncos' Jerry Judy to win NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year. So the operators are there, and betting is legal. They just need, you know, sports. Uh, Hopefully, that won't be a problem by the time Virginia launches. The Virginia Lottery announced its timeline on Wednesday with plans to finalize sports betting rules by September 15th and begin taking bets before the end of December. So, yes, Virginia, you will have sports betting. And unlike Colorado, we would figure you will have major sports to bet on when you're ready to roll. Uh, Also, you'll recall that last week when Daniel Wallach was on the podcast, he was very bullish on Massachusetts passing a bill this year and was also somewhat optimistic about California. Uh, So, John, any comments specifically on Colorado or Virginia, and how are you feeling about the pace of sports betting legalization at the moment? 
Uh, yeah, I'm never optimistic about California, so I'll, I'll screw it, Daniel, on that one. <laughs> okay. um, I think Colorado, though, is a really good state for the efforts on sports betting expansion in the U.S. Uh, you know, I've talked in the past couple of years about how, you know, when Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware innovated uh, it many times as the most aggressive gambling states over the years, most of the states kind of shrug because their state's culture is not like that. Like those nutty guys in Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware, we're not like them. So when Pennsylvania came aboard the past two years with uh, online gaming, uh, online casino gaming, um, you know, sports betting. I, I think it really seemed to drive not only more Northeast interest, but even Midwest since the Pittsburgh area gets you to Ohio and, and so on. Right. So uh, that was a big deal. And, you know, the West, Nevada accepted, obviously, um, has always tended to be very slow to embrace new forms of gambling. This is going back decades. So Colorado's launch, especially with mobile uh, uh, there, and especially with all 50 states now desperate for revenue, I think Colorado's liable to kind of launch the expansion forward across the the West and maybe across the whole country, you know. Yeah. As for Virginia, then that gets you Maryland soon enough, and maybe a more extensive effort in D.C. That nearly cements the Northeast, you know, however you define it. So, um, you know, it, we're getting there. Yeah, uh, I don't have much to add about Colorado except. Check out centennialbets.com for all the latest news on Colorado gaming. Uh, Great player. <laughs> um, in Virginia, uh, there's a bit of new clarification uh, on how many operators there will be. Uh, we had heard it could range from four to 12 online sportsbooks, pretty wide range. Uh, now there are details, at least, that, that licenses for land-based casinos or sports venues with sports betting, which are, are part of the deal in Virginia, uh, won't count toward that. So so the takeaway is that there will be at least four untethered mobile sports books, and again, up to 12. So uh, it should be a reasonably competitive marketplace when Virginia goes live. And so I was just kind of doing the math. If Virginia goes live before the end of the year, and if D.C., Tennessee, and Washington State all do also. That would put us at 22 states or districts uh, with some form of legal sports betting at the end of 2020. Not bad. You know, we had we had one at the end of 2017, uh, eight at the end of 2018, 14 at the end of 2019, probably 22 at the end of this year. Definitely looking like we will cross the halfway mark sometime in 2021. Yeah, and that's that's a uh, as I sort of mentioned the the COVID nineteen issue is that states that have been on the fence. I mean, they're desperate for where do you get new revenue? And and frankly, um, adding uh, any kind of sports betting or new gambling options uh, legally is is a, a voluntary tax in reality. So states are desperate for revenue. Whatever they get from the federal government, they get, but it's not going to be enough. They're going to need to do other things, cut back in many ways, and so. So the idea of not taking a voluntary tax, uh, it seems to me every state house, it's an easy it's an easy deal. You either raise the tax that everybody hates or you offer something that some people in your uh, in your state will uh, volunteer basically to pay a tax. Right. Uh, I think it's a no brainer. So I think, you know, of all the tragedy that, you know, in, you know, being in New Jersey and you in Pennsylvania, we, we know better than anybody the tragedy that this that has occurred in the last six months. But um, this is going to be a thing that's going to inevitably propel uh, legal gambling expansion forward in the U.S. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the COVID-19 issue. That leads right into our second story. There are 989 casinos in the United States as of a week ago. 
they were all closed, but now four are open, all of them tribal casinos, and several commercial casinos in Deadwood, South Dakota, were poised to open today. We're recording this on Thursday morning. Uh, two of the currently open casinos are in Oklahoma, one is in Idaho, and one is in Washington State. And all of them seem to be enforcing some social distancing measures, but it remains to be seen how effective those measures will be. Meanwhile, in my home state, Pennsylvania, our colleague Gary Rotstein spoke to Jay Doris, CEO of Wind Creek Bethlehem, formerly Sands Bethlehem, uh, who said when they reopen, the casino is considering taking reservations where customers would arrive at an agreed upon time and leave at the end of a certain window of time so the casino could be cleaned before the next wave of customers with reservations would enter. Gotta say, the, the famous Vegas baby scene in Swingers doesn't <laughs> work quite as well if Mike and Trent have to get on the phone and call to make a reservation before they impulse. <laughs> get in their car. But uh, this is the new reality. A handful of casinos are open. Uh, more will surely follow. Some people certainly think it's too soon. Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman has made clear she doesn't think it's soon enough. Uh, where are you falling, John? Are you dismayed to see a few casinos open or is it time to give it a shot? Uh, I think it's time to give it a, sh a shot pretty soon. Um, and really, appointments are ideal well beyond gambling, but I'll stick to uh, the topic of gambling. So, you know, there's so many gamblers. They've had a favorite poker or blackjack dealer, cocktail waitress, and other employees in some cases for decades, right? But they, they typically didn't have contact info for them now, given the suddenness of the shutdown. So they have no way to uh, connect with those people that they really uh, enjoyed uh, interacting with. So, you know, many of the workers, too, would not be comfortable with someone just sending them a check feel like charity. They're, they're, there's a lot of pride involved. So if proper precautions can be taken, I think these well-off players can have a chance not only to see their their favorite employees again in person and, and to some extent, but, you know, get the familiar service, then they could just happen to leave a big tip, you know, and I think that would be great for everybody. Um, maybe my blue collar background showing maybe, but uh, I think that's not taken into account by the talking heads on TV, at least. Yeah, you know, that's an angle that I hadn't thought about, the, the, the tipping potential. And certainly I think that's something that uh, a lot of people have been encouraged to do with like uh, food delivery and yeah, and, and even takeout and, and all that, that, uh, mm -hmm. that, yeah, that's a good opportunity if you aren't strapped at the moment uh, to sort of help out some of those people putting themselves in, in harm's way by, by working through this. Um, it's obviously really hard to address this issue without getting into a, a discussion of, of how our country and our leadership have done with the virus and the shutdown and even maybe hard to do it without discussing, you know, pure capitalism versus some degree of socialism and whether people in non-essential businesses might be more patient about going back to work if relief money was taking better care of them. Uh, understanding that, I get why these casinos want to open up and why they want to make some money. And there's a case to be made for taking some chances and partially reopening things rather than staying in a total lockdown for months on end. Uh, I personally vote for total lockdown a, a little while longer. Uh, but, you know, with where we are now, uh, the casinos are, are going to try to open, I, I guess, with careful social distancing guidelines, maybe this can be done without new outbreaks. Um, I think casino reservations the, to, to limit the number of people inside at any time and, and allow frequent cleanings is a decent idea. Um, you know, to me, going to a casino under these circumstances doesn't seem like much fun, but uh, there are some people who will feel otherwise. Are there enough of them for the casinos to actually make money? Uh, or is the cost of being open going to exceed their income? I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I, I'd guess that opening up now will do more harm than good, but 
if you're going to do it, at least do it as responsibly as possible. Enforce mask wearing, distancing, hand sanitizing, and uh, and, and and see what happens. I guess uh, all, all the all the customers are there at will. At least I guess that's that's yeah. the one thing I can say. Yeah, Eric, I think a lot of people uh, have your your same sentiment. So therefore, that means there's not going to be so many people. Like it's not like uh, oh, we've got a thousand people who are trying to come today, and we only have 400 slots. There right. might only be 200 people for 400 slots. So uh, not only can they do reservations, people can show up, but uh, there's not going to be this overwhelming, you know, overflow. So uh, I, I think this naturally works out. And, you know, look, we're all big boys and girls. I mean, um, there's certainly reason to be uh, reluctant to go, and that's fine. But if you are willing to go and there are going to be responsible uh, uh, safeguards, then uh, I think it can be at least attempted. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. So I, I just I think, uh, you know, the idea that nothing can even be tried, I don't I don't really agree with. I think uh, everybody knows the deal at this point. And so, uh, you know, if you want to go, you go. And if you don't, a lot of people won't. That's fine. But I, I think we can do this on a limited basis. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move to our third story. We'll end the news segment on a fun note this week as we'll discuss the most popular sports podcast subject uh, of the past three weeks, uh, the 1990s Chicago Bulls. John and I have both been watching ESPN's documentary series, The Last Dance, and last week in the sixth of 10 episodes, a fair amount of airtime was devoted to Michael Jordan's gambling predilection. Uh, We saw him flipping coins with security guards. We heard the famous Atlantic City story. We saw the interview with Ahmad Rashad with the sunglasses on. Uh, Jordan in present day continued to insist he never risked money he couldn't afford to lose and said he was addicted to competing, something everyone who's crossed paths with Jordan has been (laughs) saying for 30 plus years. Uh, Speaking of people who've crossed paths with Jordan, John, you covered him for a decent chunk of his career. How are you finding the documentary's portrayal of Jordan so far? Have you learned anything you didn't already know? And do you think they devoted an appropriate amount of time so far to his gambling exploits? Uh, appropriate. I think, yes. Um, you know, Jordan kind of, you know, I can quit gambling whenever I want. Um, that's not, it doesn't sounds a little bit, uh, familiar to people right. with addictions and it's not really a great look, but you know, I mean, Jordan hit the, before the series launched that many viewers would find him to be kind of a jerk after all these years of, uh, worshiping him. And, uh, uh, he's right, I think. Um, and I think he's going to be proven more right than he knows in the next couple episodes. But, uh, you know, for many years, you know, I've told people who wanted to know, you know, what's Michael Jordan really like? You know, you met him. I can't believe it. And I'd say, you know, don't ask a question if you might not like the answer. <laughs> and, you know, I started covering the NBA in the middle of Jordan's first three-peat. And, and this show, which is tremendous, by the way, it's, it's a must-viewing for people who are looking to binge-watch and maybe they're they're big uh, uh, fans of other sports, but uh, uh, not, not so much basketball. It, it's just an incredibly insightful look at a a incredible success story in anything. It's almost like a business story where mm. you don't have to like sports to, to like the show, I think. It's really uh, an insight into how, frankly, I think a lot of people get to the top. And it's not pretty, but that's my experience of what, what happens. But the, but the show kind of made me fully realize how much the Atlantic City saga cemented his permanent rudeness to non-fawning press, uh, me among them. You know? <laughs> uh, you know, he'd been coddled for so many years that he couldn't handle being challenged. Uh, he still can't help, I mean, given the recent interviews for this series. But, you know, one of the most telling media interactions for me and was that after a game at the United Center, so that's like the mid to late 90s, where the Bulls either lost or he didn't play well. So he petulantly refused to show up for the full podium interviews. You also see on TV and the post game nowadays, the NBA 
NBA Finals and other series. And, of course, that leaves the media frantic. I mean, because every boss is demanding clips from Jordan, right? you got to have Jordan. Why don't you have him? So I think we were near the end of the last podium interview, and Jordan tries to sneak out. And one of the many camera people spots him and, of course, chases after him like a bat out of hell. And the rest of us quickly follow behind, like dozens of us, really. And he seems to be ignoring us, and he's heading out of the building. Uh, for some reason, he turns around to look at the media horde. Well, of course, the camera contingent, you know, weighed down with equipment. They stumble around, even fall down in front of a scribes who have merely a notebook or tape recorder. We're luckier. You know, this delights Jordan, like this Keystone Cops uh, routine here. <laughs> you know, he just so he walks a little further and we chase him again. He turns again. Another three stooges pratfall from the poor camera guys. And then he leaves without a word, having had his fun. You know, I can't remember the exact series or the year. But the Bulls won their first three-peat in Chicago Stadium, so it narrows it down. I'll be intrigued to see if a long shot comes in and they air that footage because Jordan would be like, oh, I, I remember that. I enjoyed that so much. Uh, <laughs> I would love to have that in there. So, you right. know, I mean, finally, episode seven on Sunday is bound to be focused on a, a decent amount on the 1998 Bulls-Nets series that I covered. Um, it was remarkable in many ways, more so than NBA fans would remember now. And I wonder if Jordan's going to talk about the mind fuck, I'll say, he gave those chug nets before, during, and after the series. Um, in other news, I'll confess you know, to seeking to get a cameo in the episode. Uh, our recent podcast guest, uh, Frank Asola, mentioned that, uh, you know, of course, every time every time there's an old footage, you kind of look for yourself in there, your younger self. And uh, I'm doing the same. And I'll report on that next week. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out for you. And boy, that would be fun if they do have the footage of uh, the reporters stumbling, falling down, chasing after him that, that, that you talked about. Uh, um, I guess on that front, they did do a good job. One of the scenes that really stood out for me so far in the documentary um, of, of giving you Jordan's perspective and having you empathize with him a little bit on the, the swarm of attention and how he felt like a prisoner in his hotel room at times because uh, other, you know, they showed how otherwise he just couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed. And you kind of had to be Michael Jordan 24 seven. I, I think that they, they've given some balance there where you see, you see the jerk, but you also uh, empathize with what he's going through a, a little bit. I, I've been watching with, uh, with both my wife and my son. Uh, my wife is not a huge sports fan, but she mm. did used to watch the M NBA semi-regularly with her friends in this era. Um, mm. Like like when they got to the Bulls Trailblazers series, she mm. was like, oh yeah, I remember where I watched these games. Mm. Um, so she's, she's sort of got a, a nostalgic interest in a lot of it. Uh, mm. My son is a big sports fan who mostly educates himself on the past with YouTube videos. Uh, so he understood going in that Jordan was the GOAT, but I think watching the series has definitely made him appreciate Jordan's dominance more, yeah. uh, partially because of the way it's edited. We don't see him failing much. We don't see any of those games where he shot poorly. It's mostly highlight videos, but still. <laughs> he didn't fail much. Right, like, right, <laughs> right. No, he didn't. Um, uh, except uh, the early Pistons but, days. But right, shown, but, yeah. but you would you would think from watching this that he like never had an off night. Obviously, he mm -hmm. did on occasion, but not often. Um, but yeah, I, I, I figure that if a decent chunk of the current generation switches from LeBron to Jordan in the GOAT debate. That's a good thing. So I, I'm enjoying it very much overall. I find the behind-the-scenes footage from that 98 season to be fascinating. They got so much good stuff there. And uh, the director and the editors are doing a really good job weaving the different timelines and narratives together. Um, 
All that said, I don't know that I'm learning anything new. Um, I'm being reminded of some things I'd forgotten, um, but I'm not sure there's any big new information in here. And, you know, the thought that Jordan was competitive to the point of being an asshole. Yeah, that's it's kind of been common knowledge for for a while, I think. So if anything, so far, He's coming off a little less poorly than I expected him to in this, but uh, it's it seems there are warnings that the worst is yet to come. Uh, well, the worst is yet to come, but also I, I think uh, I do like him a little bit more in the sense that he has decided that he's going to make sure that everybody understands, you know, who he is for better or for worse. Um, reminds me of the Bob Dylan Chronicles, uh, his uh, autobiography, where you know Dylan was very different, obviously, but he was considered to be so eccentric and so bizarre, and he, he gave rambling answers to journalists, and he, he made up stories and how strange he was, and he eventually. Uh, a few years ago, wrote a book and it said, look, it was all an act. I mean, I'm not really that strange, but I just, <laughs> right. I just didn't, I didn't like the whole idea of, you know, uh, you know, let get the real story of Bob Dylan. I don't want to give that out. And so uh, he just, he got bored with the, the persona. And so he decided to explain to people who he really is. And I think this is what Jordan is doing. And I, I actually respect that. I mean, I, and I, I was never too fond of the guy. I'm still not, but I, I kind of respect the fact that he's decided that, you know, the old, you know, McDonald's, uh, Space Jam, Michael <laughs> Jordan, blah, blah, myth uh, is ridiculous. And so why not let people know who he really is? And like I said, I, I personally think by the end, he comes off a little worse than he thinks he does, but it doesn't really matter. The, in the end, uh, especially fans who were kind of fawning over him, you know, for various ages, they're going to have a better, more well-rounded uh, view of exactly who he is. I, I think that's great. The series is great anyway, but that's going to be the, the takeaway, I think. Yeah. Um, I should probably comment on, on just the gambling angle uh, that I tend to believe him that, that gambling was an extension of his desire to compete and that it, that it wasn't out of control. Um, and if so, I, I can empathize with that. A, a lot of my poker playing or DFS playing isn't really about making money. It's about, can I beat this guy? And, and can I beat the field? Um, I did read a funny quote from Charles Barkley this week talking about Jordan as a poker player. He said, Jordan's approach was that he was usually the richest guy in the game. So his strategy was to buy the pot, to bet so big that everyone else would shy <laughs> away, which, you know, it's a big stack poker. That's that's a smart approach if you have the bankroll and the balls to, uh, to pull it off. Um, so it seems that this week's episodes are going to get into the 1993 retirement and baseball and maybe hit on the conspiracy theories there. So I'm curious, before it airs, do you have a, a theory you subscribe to? Uh, do you believe any of the conspiracy theories? Uh, that's tough. I mean, it, the 98 version, we retired and then he comes back eventually was easier. You could see how tired he was of right. all the attention and everything else. So so that one, is, we know what that is. The first one is more difficult, uh, you know. I, I don't rule anything out, I, I got to say, but um, as far as the gambling goes, uh, I mentioned in a tweet uh, during the uh, broadcast uh, uh, over the weekend that um, I played in a celebrity uh, golf tournament, and no, I was not the celebrity, with, a, <laughs> with, an, with an NFL Hall of Famer who had played, he said he had played Jordan uh, in golf the day before for $10,000 a hole. And uh, this is 1990s money, so it's a little uh, closer to 20,000 now. And um, uh, I was not surprised. Uh, yeah, I mean, because uh, I mean, golf is the most famous sport. Everybody gambles in golf. Everybody plays golf at the country club or the local public links. You know, they they got 
$10, $20 on it, whatever. Well, Jordan can't play for $10. He's got to pay <laughs> right. for more than that. So this guy, these are two wealthy guys. Um, $10,000 a haul sounded about right. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think you may be right. Like I said, I, it doesn't sound good to say, well, I can quit whatever I wanted or, you know, I didn't have to do anything. But I, ultimately, I think you're right. And plus, he has so much money that, you know, uh, there's ways to blow all of your money if you're an NBA player. And I know many of them and they've blown all of it. But right. um, gambling is not necessarily the way to do it, uh, frankly, because he's such a control freak that he's not the, you know, the the cocaine addict, uh, you know, throwing money around with hookers and blow up. He, that's not him. He's right. He's he's too he's too obsessed with controlling things. And I think that ultimately saved him in terms of gambling. But uh, you're right. I, I'm interested to see how they get into, you know, why he quit the first time. That's a tougher one. Right. I assume we will at least hear the the topic broached of the rumor that David Stern was suspending him for gambling, and that's why he went away. And I don't think people really fully subscribe to that, but that is certainly a popular conspiracy theory, and uh, I would be shocked if they ignored it totally uh, this coming week. Well, I think the, the, the possibility, too, though, you know, he winds up playing baseball in the minor leagues, mm-hmm. is that he was so obsessed with um, being the greatest of all time, of all time, of all time, uh, his ego might have gotten the best of him. Say, look, I just won three championships in a row. What more can I do? Right. I think I'm great at baseball, too. I can I can kick ass there. Uh, that's possible. And um, that would intrigue me. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's it, but it wouldn't shock me because, again, his ego is so huge that who knows? Right. All right. Well, we shall see. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. A couple of weeks ago, the NFL draft provided us with the first major sports betting event since the coronavirus shutdown began. This Saturday, UFC returns with the first semi-major actual sport taking place in America that people can bet on. It's a 12-fight card providing plenty of wagering opportunities, and there's enough interest that DraftKings is putting on a million-dollar DFS contest. Joining us now to offer his insights is our U.S. Bets colleague, Brian Pempis, one of our best and most prolific reporters and certainly the most knowledgeable MMA observer on our staff. Brian, welcome once again to Gamble On. Good to be here. It's been a while. I think back in November of 2018, right? Sounds about right. It was pretty soon after you joined the staff uh, that we uh, put you through the uh, ritual by fire that is coming on Gamble. (laughs) Um, So no matter how closely you follow UFC, how well you know these fighters, how well you've scouted the matchups and the styles, there are some intangibles with this card. There won't be a crowd. Uh, We don't know how fighters will deal with that. Some of the training camps have been abbreviated and sparring partner access was limited. We don't know whether referees might stop fights more quickly because of a desire to prevent any one from needing to be rushed to the hospital. Lots of strange factors to consider. Do you see any of that opening up opportunities for betters to find edges, such as finding favorable odds on a, on a stoppage ending? You know, that's a really interesting question. And, um, you know, it, it's really up to uh, what kind of theories you can generate as a sports better. I mean, I like to kind of think of it like this way. I mean, come up with your own theory. And if you're right, you feel like a genius. If you're if you're wrong, you know, then you had some entertainment. But, I mean, it's so hard to answer this question in terms of what it could do to the um, to how fights end. Um, you know, I think in terms of cuts, it could be if a cut develops on a fighter, then it could be stopped more prematurely than, than it usually would. And in the main event with Tony Ferguson, he's notorious for cutting people with his elbows 
So I think if you're looking at that fight, I mean, it's going to be a barn burner either way. So it's fairly unlikely to go to the judges, but, uh, but something like that, you know, a cut could definitely, I could definitely see a cut ending a fight earlier than it normally would in a non, you know, non pan, non pandemic uh, event. Uh, but in terms of, of, uh, you know, fighters taking punishment, I'm not really sure if it's going to have any impact. Um, in, in the UFC, the fans are really hard on, situations where there's a premature stoppage uh people hate that um in in mma i'm sure you know in boxing too right right uh, people do not like seeing fights that ended when one guy still had um you know some fight left in him so i think from that point of view the ufc uh, you know i'm not sure if they've had any conversation with with the uh, regulator or refs ahead of time to you know say hey you know, this is going to be treated like a normal card. Like, don't just stop fights super early for no reason. Because if they do that, the whole card could be just a disaster in terms of how the fans, you know, look at it. Um, you know, I think the lack of a crowd doesn't really help the top athletes in terms of their finding their fifth gear late in a fight, you know, to really get that extra, um, you know, finishing ability. So if the fight goes later, um, you know, into the fifth round and maybe you're looking at live betting, maybe, you know, you could bank on the fight not ending in a late finish, you know, without that extra sort of adrenaline that the crowd gives you in UFC. But at the same time, these fighters know that they're fighting in front of a massive viewership, you know. There's nothing else on TV. It's kind of showcasing the UFC and their skills. So they might be out there looking for to make a statement. Um, so it's really hard to tell what kind of hard to guess what's in a fighter's head in terms of how they're going to fight. But um, as far as the, the referees, I think they're going to – try to keep it as close to as normal as possible just so the sport doesn't seem, you know, super weird. It's already going to be weird without a crowd. It's kind of, kind of going to be like a glorified sparring session for a lot of these people. But uh, I don't think the UFC wants any sort of real divergence in terms of how these fights are, are stopped. Um, and I think, you know, from the UFC's point of view, they, you know, they want highlight real knockout, you know, finishes, um, in a, in a situation like this where they're showcasing the sport. So, um, you know, I don't know. Um, what's really interesting to me here is whether the UFC has incentivized or, you know, sweetened the pot for any of these fighters in terms of their bonuses for competing. Mm. If you have, you know, more on the line and bonuses for, you know, stopping a guy in a fight, you know, you could see guys go for it. Um, so I, I don't have any information about the UFC's financial uh, sort of incentives, um, any extra incentives uh, for, you know, for these athletes to go out there and really go for it. Um, if you get any information like that as a better, then uh, I would factor that in. Um, but I haven't seen anything like that. It seems as of right now that it's just a standard, you know, pay structure, standard bonus structure. Um, so I don't see anything happening there at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would just get as a sports better, I would gather, as much information as you can and come up with a fun theory that you can bounce off, you know, talk about with your friends and maybe you're completely wrong and, and, and you end up, you know, not having that edge that you thought you had with your theory, but you know, you can still have a lot of fun talking about it and theorizing about how this unprecedented situation is going to impact the fights. Right. Uh, yeah, Brian, I'm told the main event Saturday is Tony Ferguson versus uh, Justin Gaethje, who is a replacement for the scheduled uh, Ferguson-Habib fight. Uh, I'm seeing Ferguson, I guess, about a minus 170 favorite, and uh, Gaethje somewhere around a 145, uh, underdog plus 145. Um, does either side then strike you as decent value with those? Um, 
And if Ferguson wins, do you think we'll see the Habib fight that fans have dreamed of for years? Or does that fight just seem cursed to you and kind of faded never to happen? <laughs> yeah, that's what every MMA fan is, is uh, wondering right now. Um, I saw Gaethje as, uh, with a price as good as plus 170 at Fox Bet the other day, but uh, now he's listed at uh, plus 163 at Fox Bet, which I think is the best price out there. Yeah. Uh, so 145, you know, is a little bit less enticing. Um, you know, I would look for that 160 range if you're gonna if you're gonna bet on Gaethje. Um But you know, a lot of people that I've I've read and listened to over the the past several weeks really think this is a coin flip. So if you're getting Gaethje at you know around 40 percent implied probability, then there's probably some value there. I mean, you're gonna have people that are loyal to both fighters, and it's hard to really. Um, interpret any you know bias out there in terms of how people are breaking down fights people that are really close to these athletes or you know deep inside the sport Um, so they you know everyone has their their favorites in terms of of who they like as a kind of from a fan perspective um, even if you're like an MMA industry insider um, so to speak but I think I wouldn't bet on Ferguson here at at that price Um, it just doesn't seem uh, that great, but you know, I really Gaethje has that style, and um, that a lot of people are saying is going to give Ferguson the uh, a hard time. And it's sort of like to use a poker analogy, like Ferguson has won twelve fights in a row, so he's won a bunch of coin flips in a row. Like if you're playing the main event, your your run of winning coin flips is going to come to an end eventually. And I think that's sort of what people are are thinking here is that Ferguson has won many fights in a row um, where he's taken damage. Uh, been dropped even in some fights and he's come back and won. So he's really kind of squeaked by in some spots. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's, he's come back with, you know, will and determination and, and really proved to be one of the best, but uh, you kind of get that feeling that he's won some coin flips in a row. And uh, one of these days he's going to lose that coin flip that, uh, you know, that, that all in he's going to, his, um, you know, pocket tens are going to lose to an ace King eventually. Um, so I, I like Gaethje here at around 160, but 145, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe you could find a better better fight to bet on at that price. As for uh, the Habib versus Ferguson fight, um, I think the UFC still really wants that. I know books want it. When I was talking to um, one book in Las Vegas, they anticipated that it would be a top five bet fight um, in UFC history just behind uh, the McGregor fights. Um, so I think there's still a lot of interest out there. And uh, there really is no bigger opponent for, for Habib than Ferguson. They, they're both on 12-fight win streaks in the UFC, which is, you know, just unheard of in MMA. Boxing, you know, boxers go on much longer win streaks. But in UFC, um, you know, people, people suffer setbacks a lot more often. Um, only, only five people have had longer ones than 12 fights in uh, UFC history, and just one of those are active. So, you know, if Ferguson wins on Saturday, it'll be 13 in a row. So, I mean, the UFC has to try that fight again. There's just no way they cannot do it. It's almost impossible if, if uh, Ferguson wins for them not to go for it for a, a sixth time. Um, doesn't matter, you know, if you know it's cursed, you just have to keep trying because it's such a monumental fight for the sport. And, uh, you know, books, I think, would, would still love it. But, you know, it's not so bad for for Ferguson or whoever, or Gaethje if they lose, because it's sort of expected that the loser will face McGregor and the winner will face Habib. So they're going to have you know, huge fights. Uh, whoever loses this fight on Saturday is going to probably have a huge fight lined up afterwards. So it's really not the end of the world for either, either fighter. But, um, you know, it's really unfortunate that the fight 
the Habib versus Ferguson fight has fallen through so many times because Ferguson is reaching his later years. He's 36 now. You know, that's getting up there for MMA. Um, from a competitive standpoint, um, and this might have no bearing on the betting handle or the interest from sports bettors, but the fight would have been probably its, um, the, its most competitive back in, you know, 2016, 2017 when they, when they scheduled it. You know, there, there's definitely a possibility that even if Ferguson loses on Saturday, uh, he'll eventually face Habib because that's a fight that people have been wanting for, been clamoring for for a long time. But it's really interesting. And this, I don't know if there's any um, stories like this in boxing, but when uh, Habib flew out of the country back in April, when the fight with Ferguson was sort of still um, on the table, uh, a lot of people gave him crap for that. A lot of people were... We're saying, why would you leave California where, where Ferguson's training as well? Um, and it, yeah, if Habib was still in the U.S., maybe they could they could get him to go to Florida and they'd have this fight. Um, but uh, Ferguson, as a result, uh, decided to still uh, do the weight cut, and he weighed in at the championship weight the day before he would have faced Habib on the scheduled uh, April 18th uh, day as sort of like a in sort of like a look look, I showed up, you didn't show up, you know? Right. Um, it's sort of like an F you to Habib too, you know? Like, so in a way, I think some of the diehard fans kind of look at it like Ferguson won. You know, he, mm. he showed up, you know, he, he didn't – not, not that Habib looked for a way out, you know, definitely not saying that. But uh, um, it's interesting, kind of a dynamic there where, um, you know, Ferguson showed up, made weight, you know, he kind of, kind of has that, that win, you know, <laughs> right. in a way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the books, um, they, the books want that event. I mean, Habib is an international star. Um, and, uh, Ferguson, there's just, been, there's been so much advertising too, for that fight, so much promotion for it. I think the UFC can still has, you know, investment to, uh, kind of recoup from all that promotion from that fight for years. And I think, you know, they're going to want to, um, it might be Habib's last fight. Let's say Habib, let's say Ferguson loses and Habib fights Gaethje and then fights McGregor again. And he's thinking about retiring. They might give him that Ferguson fight, no matter what happens with Ferguson between now and then just to sort of like, uh, let's just do this, you know, for the fans and, and all that. And I think, I think the, the betting interest will always be, be there for that fight because it's such an intriguing style matchup. Yeah, as a as a boxing guy, as you're hearing you talk about it, it certainly all reminds me of, of Mayweather Pacquiao a little bit. Of just there, there was the time when it would have been the most competitive and the best possible fight, and it took until five years after that for it to actually happen. It ended up making probably more money five years later than, than it would have originally, but it ended up being a disappointing fight. So I don't know if maybe we're heading toward a, a similar road. Perhaps if this eventually happens, it'll be too late from a uh, the standpoint of getting the best possible fight, but not too late from a standpoint of a lot of betting and a lot of money being made. Right. So I'm curious for your thoughts on, on viewership of uh, this Saturday's card and, and how that'll impact the live betting volume. Uh, on the one hand, you can't see it at a sports bar. You shouldn't invite a dozen friends over for an affordable pay-per-view party. And money is tight in a, in a lot of households. So viewership might be low. On the other hand, people are desperate for live sports and, and might order this pay-per-view despite the financial strain. How do you see that balancing out and how might it impact the in-fight betting? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, like I said uh, earlier, uh, books that I've talked to, you know, they say most of the handles the day of or the day before and, and FanDuel is um, seeing some early betting come in. 
Um, but to my knowledge, uh, in-fight wagering on UFC isn't that popular yet. I mean, it is sort of a hard sport to bet on during it, um, unless you're doing it in between rounds during that 60-second window. Um, so it's, uh, it's mainly a, a pre-fight, you know, kind of market. Um, but I think that can change, you know, in the future. I mean, maybe the UFC will make changes where they'll lengthen the, lengthen the amount of time between rounds where, you know, gives people more time to place a wager. Hmm. I've actually never bet on a UFC fight during the middle of it. I, I've only bet uh, pre-fight. Um, I looked at a line one time during a fight, and uh, it, it just seemed like such a uh, – such a risky bet. I mean, it just, MMA is crazy. Boxing is crazy. Anything can happen, but MMA is, you know, head kicks and, and uh, all that, you know, things can change uh, so quickly. Uh, so it's, it didn't really feel like a great, um, a great line when I looked at it. just, uh, just anecdotally one example. Um, so I think, um, you know, maybe, maybe the product has some room to evolve um, before it becomes uh, more popular you know, but going back to the uh, the way people are going to be watching this fight, I think, you know, you're not going to be betting on a fight live unless you're watching it live. Um, you know, you, you might be able to bet on a, a fight. You know, let's say you open up your, your sportsbook app and uh, during the middle of the, the event, uh, you might decide to bet on a fight that's coming up in the night. You know, even if you're not watching it live, just following on Twitter, um, you know, you can definitely do that. But I think, you know, obviously if you're not watching it live, there, you can't bet on the outcome during the middle of a fight um, in between rounds or during the round. At least not responsibly. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although Twitter is pretty good at providing updates. People post, you know, clips. Uh, I don't know if it's completely legal to uh, post these, these short clips of the fight, you know, from a pay-per-view, but, uh, but um, the, the undercard, the prelims are on, you know, um, ESPN free TV, you know, they're not pay-per-view. So um, you might, you might get some more uh, live betting on that than you would um, on the uh, main card uh, with it being pay-per-view. But uh, I do think the nature, uh, the, the pay-per-view nature of, of the event will suppress the betting handle a little bit. You know, if it was just straight on ESPN, the, the you know, main ESPN, I think it would be a lot bigger. You know, $65 kind of high. Thinking about, you know, with this economy, people are kind of worried. Um, obviously, people got their stimulus checks and all that, but uh, $65, uh, unless you're sharing it with people at, at home, um, is is sort of a, a lot to, to uh, expect for some casual fans. So maybe the uh, in-game wagering will not, you know, balloon um, for this fight. Maybe the all the growth in the handle will be, you know, just the, pre-game, the pre-fight stuff. Um, Although I'm sure people are going to find out, figure out clever ways to, you know, watch it on Zoom with each other and someone's going to, you know, put it on their computer for their friends to see, which I'm not sure if that's allowed or how that, you know, if that violates any terms and conditions or, or whatnot. But, um, you know, the UFC, I'm sure boxing has this problem too with a lot of, under, you know, unauthorized viewership of the broadcast. So I'm sure that's going to go up dramatically, probably more so than the actual pay-per-view purchases. Um, so, you know, I mean, books might, you know, I could be wrong. Books might see a lot of, you know, in-fight in wagering as a result because maybe people are going to break the rules and, and find ways to watch it, you know, not not legally. Um, so it's really, I'd be really interesting to see data on that, you know, from books after the fact. Yeah, uh, you know, Brian, a number of surveys over the years have shown that, uh, you know, baby boomers, especially males, they're they're more likely to gamble and, and also to prefer boxing to MMA. Um, you know, millennials and, and younger uh, tend to gamble less, but they like the MMA more, although boxing has rebounded, certainly from its abyss of, uh, you know, a decade ago or so. But um, from your small sample size of friends and family and social media acquaintances in, the, in that age range, um, 
in the millennial age range. Um, does that tend to hold up for, for you about both uh, liking MMA over boxing and, but not necessarily gambling on it or, or do your friends uh, gamble as much as uh, uh, older people do? Um, yeah, I think UFC is uh, kind of still in its infancy. I think that's, I don't really know many people who gamble on it with any regularity. Um, you know, if there's a big fight, sure. I, I know people that would definitely bet on it, but I don't know. I actually don't have any friends or, or family that bet on it, you know, card after card. Um, it's sort of, it's rare to find that. Uh, and from what I, from my experience, you know, I'm, I know there are people out there that do that, um, but I don't really know too many of them. Um, but I think, you know, with the fact that we're still sort of in the early days of this market, you know, 10 states only, only 10 states have legal online uh, sports betting and MMA is still kind of a fringe uh, sport, I, I believe. And I think it has a lot of room to evolve. Uh, most people um, can really only name a handful of fighters. Um, I do know some, some people that, you know, train and compete in amateur MMA around where I live and, and folks like that who are, you know, diehard MMA uh, people, um, it's weird. They don't, they're not, they don't need money on the fight to, uh, to find it really interesting. You know, they're trying to learn things from these fighters. So it, it's, it's weird. Um, I don't, the people that I know who do MMA don't, you know, really bet on it because they're already kind of looking at it from a different angle. But the UFC is, I think, in my opinion, it's a really interesting and strange, uh, sport. It has no reliable ranking system. Uh, people just fight whoever the UFC will make fights based on social media buzz or, you know, trash talking. So it has no, you know, set um, rankings. And you've actually seen federal lawmakers criticize the UFC about this. You know, there's talks, there's talks of uh, kind of trying to, you know, implement the Alley Act on MMA, you know, try to make the sport um, kind of better for the athletes so they know what to expect. So I think the fact that there's no real ranking system is kind of holds it back, um, maybe among millennials um, who are, looking at it, you know, from, um, who don't really see it as a, a true sport in, in that sense, but, you know, other things about the UFC, like you don't, no one really trusts the, uh, the UFC's like measurements in terms of an athlete's height or weight, you know, some of those are fudged. Um, I've heard stories, you know, you hear stories about people just putting up their arms in the back of the, the, uh, arena and they just take a little, you know, tape measure and measure their wingspan. It's very crudely done. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's really no um, reliable, you know, tighter um, body dimensions that you can, you can see. So I think if you're, if you think of millennials looking for, you know, gambling, that's sort of skill-based, the UFC doesn't really offer the best um, kind of situation for a sport in terms of the information that you can have. Um, you know, we don't know what the athletes are, how heavy they are when they walk into the octagon. That would be great to know. And I think would, would give some millennials some, you know, some clarity about like, you know, what they're betting on, um, and refereeing and judging is sometimes all over the place. Um, especially if the UFC is in a sport, like in a state like, uh, New York, which is kind of new to MMA, there have been some really weird, like judging and uh, refereeing situations in, in New York state over the past several years that, you know, make people kind of confused. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it requires a lot of research, uh, I feel like. Um, so, you know, people and millennials can definitely, you know, kind of I feel like people can feel like they have an edge if they do the research, but um, you know, it's tough from that, uh, that point of view to kind of um, not know a lot of things about it, you know, compared to like the NFL or, or basketball. And um, you know, these fighters have also have much kind of smaller bodies of work than boxers do. You know, some of these fighters only have, you know, 10, 15 fights before they get into the 
Octagon. There's not a lot of information about their, their track records. So I think um, maybe as the sport gets older, it'll change. You know, obviously as millennials age, they'll um, maybe just naturally be betting more on sports in general. But I think the UFC has some ways to go. Uh, another, th- another thing about the UFC um, is that, you know, with MMA, the UFC, um, you know, can't have a fighter, you know, fight one of the stars in Bellator. There's no cross-promotion uh, fighting. So you have a lot of situations where there's a great athlete in one organization that can't compete against a star in another league, another MMA promotion. So um, if the if MMA could figure out a way to kind of allow that to happen, I think it would feel more like a sport too. And maybe, um, you know, I'm just kind of um, – hypothesizing here that you know people would kind of think of it more of a sport and maybe be more inclined to uh you know bet on it like a sport um so to speak one glaring uh, thing about mma or ufc whatever organization it is is that there's no scoreboard you know in boxing you have scores after the rounds so you know who's winning who's losing you know mma well, doesn't have that right well not exactly because the boxing scores are kept secret uh until until the the fight is over um it's the they they oh right they've experimented with open scoring but it's very rarely used and so the scores that you'll see the uh the broadcasters uh uh uh, guess best guess at the scoring but you won't see the actual scores until it's over okay are those pretty reliable what the the broadcaster scores yeah uh so often they're more correct than what the judges give you. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, it's all so subjective and I imagine it's pretty much the same way with, with MMA that uh, there's, there's a lot of opinion involved in determining who wins around. And, uh, and so uh, your any close fight becomes a controversial fight. Okay. Well, in MMA at most you'll get is the broadcaster saying that, you know, so-and-so won that round. They're not going to give you, they're not, they usually don't say they won 10, nine or 10, eight or 10, seven. Okay. Um, so the fans, especially casuals, um, really have no idea what, how dominant that round was. I mean, you can, you can get a sense of it by watching it, but, um, with fewer rounds in MMA, uh, the, you know, each scoring, uh, each round of scoring is a bigger deal. So a 10, eight is a much bigger deal. Um, so the, the broadcasters don't usually provide you with any sort of estimation about that. And I think that is, uh, maybe holds sport back a little bit in a way. Um, I'm not sure if the UFC could ever, uh, you know, shorten the rounds, maybe make more of them. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, do a lot of work to, uh, to the way broadcasters talk about the sport. Um, you know, there could be some reforms there, I think, to make it, to make it more conducive to, uh, maybe what, um, a millennial would, uh, kind of expect from a sport where they're uh, putting their money on the line. It's funny to hear hear you explain some of that stuff. That how how similar the things preventing UFC from going fully mainstream. How how similar they are to to what boxing is dealing with. It's a lot of the same problems. It's you know too much product on pay per view, uh, too many controversial decisions. You know lack of centralized rankings that people can trust and so forth. They they, they have a lot of a lot in common uh, in, in that regard. I would say. Um, but, uh, yeah, always, always great talking to you, Brian. This was really uh, interesting and informative. Uh, so thanks for uh, coming on the podcast again and, uh, enjoy the fights on Saturday. Sounds good. Thanks yeah, guys. Thanks, Brian. Two men, $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the gamble on bankroll.
Nothing new to report on our bankroll. We're still up by $189 with $990 on hold in futures bets. Uh, and we're going to reach a bit and uh, both find something to bet on this week. Uh, we have $9,199 available to bet with. And uh, you're up first, John. Yeah, I have to wait a little longer for the PGA Tour and my five-week uh, five winning streak uh, to continue. But um, <laughs> I'm going to dip my toe into the Women's Pro Golf Cactus Tour in Arizona this week. Mm, um, okay. Yeah, it's kind of a three-horse race in a limited field. Uh, so my liking of top five or top ten picks or top twenty, you know, it's not a good idea this week. Um, now, who wins? That's what we want to know. Uh, I like twenty-one-year-old Haley Moore. She has a first, a third, and a fourth in her last three starts. Um, I'll go a modest 50 units at plus 250 on DraftKings. Um, and for serious betters, shop around. You might get a slightly better line. Um, she's not the direct favorite, but um, uh, maybe she should be, and you got a shot there. Well, this is our shared bankroll, John. I expect you to shop around and find the best uh-huh. line for us. Come on. <laughs> I should have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so $50 on her at, uh, at plus 250. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking for my bet, uh, I want to give us a little something to sweat with this UFC event. Uh, I like Brian's logic on why Gaethje might be a live underdog, how Ferguson is bound to lose a coin flip eventually. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find any of that plus 160 pricing that Brian talked about at this stage. The best I saw was plus 150. Not ideal, but uh, but still, let's give it a shot. Uh, but for uh, same as you, only really half of our usual uh, bet size, since I don't have much MMA knowledge or, or much confidence in this pick. Uh, so I'm going also for $50 instead of our usual 100 I'm going to bet on Gaethje to beat Ferguson. We will profit $75 if it comes through. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Brian Pempis. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, I hand it over to you, John, to take us out. Yeah, Eric, you know, I'm having a good time watching my monkeys in the four-team Taiwan Baseball League I wrote about on NJOnlineGambling.com. Um, one challenge, though, is that they're so dominant now that um, I can't just give a run and a half anymore uh, in some games. I'm supposed to give two and a half runs, and that's getting a little less appealing on the betting side. But I like listening to the announcers and watching the uh, the wackiness that is Taiwan Baseball. Um, but the Korean Baseball League now has started this week, and ex-giant Matt Williams is one of the managers, by the way. So, you know, there's baseball, whether you wager or not, and and that's a good thing in the spring. So, you know, give it a shot. And until we return to normal, I would say until next time, gamble on.